chapter 2. And we will actually finish Luke chapter 2 this morning, God willing. And we will finish the, the sort of the prologue to Luke's gospel. The gospel, as you think about it, is the life and death of Jesus, but most specifically is life in ministry. And for the first two chapters of Luke, we've seen the announcement of John the Baptist's birth, and we've seen the announcement of Jesus' birth. And we've seen the two mothers come together, and we've seen the birth of John the Baptist and how the community gathers and rejoices, and we've seen the birth of Jesus and how the shepherds and the community rejoice. And now, because Luke's emphasis is Jesus, we get more stories, and, and we want to focus on what Luke includes, because Luke's done careful research. I'm sure he was aware of the visit of the Magi. He doesn't include it. It doesn't meet his purpose of what he's trying to get after. And so Luke does give us this final account. Really, the only glimpse we get into Jesus' childhood is here. Yes, I know that there are, are stories in the Quran and stories in the apocryphal Gospels, the Gospels that were never received as Scripture, written hundreds of years later, that have Jesus making clay pigeons and they take off. And somebody's rude to Jesus and he strikes them dead and then he feels bad and he raises them to life. That is not the picture we get here in Luke. This is the only glimpse we get. And you've probably often wondered this. What, what happened to those first 33 years? We don't really know. We do know this. Luke has given us this account. Luke chapter 2, verses 40 to 52. I'd like to begin by reading the text in full. Luke chapter 2, 40 to 52. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Booths, at Passover. I'm sorry, Feast of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the thing that he had spoken to them. And he went down to them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Amazing account. The only glimpse we get into the childhood of Jesus it takes the literary form that Luke's already used. Last week, I wrongly called it an ellipsis. Ellipsis are those dot, dot, dot. It's an inclusio. Pastor Daniel was kind enough to repeatedly correct me on that point. Um, and for that, we are grateful. Um, an inclusio, an inclusio is a literary way of setting aside a unit. And Luke has already ended chapter 2 with an inclusio. We saw that when we studied Jesus and his parents going up to the temple to be, circum not to be um, ceremony cleansed and for the child to be redeemed back in verses, chapter 2, verses 40 through uh, 
sorry, chapter 2, verse, I'm on the wrong page. In chapter 2, verses um, 22 and 23, we see that according to the law, according to the law, they went up according to the law. And then things happen, and then in verse 39, the inclusio ends, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. And that's how we know that's a unit. The other thing an inclusio does is it sets a major theme, a major tone to be looking for. And here, the whole context we're to understand is what Simeon says and what Anna does are to be seen in the context of Jesus and his family obeying and performing the things according to the law. Specifically, in the context of his parents redeeming him, buying him back. Well, this is another clear inclusio. Look at it in verse 40 and 52. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You see it, right? The emphasis is on the growth of Jesus. So the title of this message is Growing in Strength, Wisdom, and Favor with God. Luke is telling us this story, and as we're approaching it and trying to make sense of it, um, what we're seeing from the inclusio is we are to see, we're to look, we're, we should expect to find Jesus growing in strength, Jesus growing in wisdom, Jesus growing in favor with God and man. That's exactly what we do find, which is an amazing, amazing thing to think about. And I think this morning as we study this, your, your understanding of who Jesus is and, and what he did and how low he stooped to enter this world, I, I hope and believe, will stretch some. We're going to look at the story in five points. First, we, we already introduced verse 40 and 52, a growing Messiah, a growing Messiah. Now, I'm going to take both ends of the bookends at once, since they sort of repeat each other, and look at them. And so just walk through it. In verse 40, it's the child... And Jesus is growing up right in front of us. In verse 40, he's the child. In verse 43, the boy. In verse 52, Jesus. But what's the common factor? The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. The favor of God was upon him. Verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. These are remarkable, remarkable things. I want you to think about this. Jesus, according to the New Testament, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. Colossians chapter 1. He is our wisdom. Jesus is the one who made the heavens and the earth, according to John 1. And here, we learn two things, at least. Jesus grew physically, which I don't think is a terrible surprise for you, but that, that involves a lot of things, learning new things. First, a child has to learn how to walk, and as your body grows and grows, you're learning new things. Jesus learned his father's trade. In one passage, he's the son of the carpenter, and in another passage, he is the carpenter. Jesus is growing, learning muscle control, learning how to live in this world. I don't think that's too confusing. Jesus grew in wisdom. The one who is wisdom incarnate grew in wisdom. He learned things. And this, this is where we've got to be careful because we're tempted to sometimes deify Jesus' humanity. 
And what I mean by that is this. We see an account of Jesus. Jesus does something remarkable. Say like right here, where Jesus is amazing people with his learning. And we think to ourselves, well, of course he's amazing people with his learning. He's God. That's not the point Luke wants to draw. Or Jesus goes out into the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan, and he resists the temptation. You say, well, of course he resisted the temptation. He's God. We're tempted to start to think of him like he's Clark Kent walking around, but all the time underneath, dun, 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 is the big S. He's Superman. Luke is not drawing that point. That's one of the big contrasts between the apocryphal gospels, the fake false gospels, and the stories they have, where Jesus is Superman running around, raising people from the dead, making clay pigeons that fly, speaking while they're cutting the, the speaking while, to his parents and blessing them while his umbilical cord's being cut. Those stories exist. That's not the picture Luke has. Let me, let me actually read a quote to you from Bruce Ware in his excellent book, The Man, Christ, Jesus about this account. This remarkable account of Jesus' interaction with the teachers of the law in Jerusalem raises a very important question for our understanding of Jesus. Just what accounts for the remarkable questions, answers, and understanding that Jesus evidenced in his conversation with those learned men? So he's saying, we're asking the question, What's the basis? What's the foundation? What's the reason? What accounts for? What explains how this child, we're going to read in a little bit, is so wise, is giving such good answers, and now people are astonished. And we're tempted instinctively, he says, to reason that Jesus had such a remarkable understanding of the law because he was God in human flesh. After all, we might think, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did not understand who they were dealing with. If they had only known the truth, that this 12-year-old boy was none other than the incarnate God, they would have understood that his wisdom came from being God. I believe this common evangelical intuition, this is where talking, and is by appealing to his deity is not the answer that Luke, the gospel writer, wishes us to see. Consider again Luke 2, 40 and 52, which function as bookends around this account of Jesus' childhood visit to Jerusalem. They say that the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And here's, here's Bruce Ware's conclusion. Amazingly, both of these verses indicate that Jesus' wisdom is not a function of his divine nature, but an expression of his growth as a human being. Let me say that again. Jesus' wisdom seen here is not the, well, of course he's God. So of course he's wise, and of course he's going to blow them away. Rather, and this is what should make it all the more awesome, here's a 12-year-old boy who has been diligently studying his scripture. Here is a boy who's been learning and learning and hungry to learn. And as a diligent, faithful young man, Jesus is showing us just what in his humanity is possible through the prayerful, faithful study of God's word. Rather than running around with the big S under his shirt, we should be in awe. We should be in awe of the faithfulness of Christ and the humility of Christ. Just how low did Jesus stoop when he took on flesh? Turn turn to Philippians chapter 2 briefly. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. And we want to be careful here. We want to be careful that we don't strip Jesus of his deity. He is God. He never stops being God. But we want to follow where the text takes us. And the text here is emphasizing growth, a boy learning. Now, there's a mystery here. How on earth can an omniscient 
being learn and grow in wisdom. Philippians chapter 2 says this, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Some of your translations say emptied himself. And there's a whole lot of debate in books written about what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Well, he goes on to tell us. He emptied himself, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And then he says it again, being born in the likeness of men. And then he says it again, and being found in human form. How did Jesus empty himself? How did Jesus make himself nothing? He became man. And think about it. The God who scripture says never grows weary or tired, who never sleeps. Jesus is weary and tired in the gospels and he sleeps. The God who neither hungers nor thirsts, hungers and thirsts. From the cross he cries, I thirst. Satan tempts him with hunger and food. And the God who knows all things, by virtue of becoming a man like you and me, learned. He learned. Turn, turn, turn a little further over to Hebrews chapter 2. And that doesn't mean he stopped being God. Of course he was God. The entire time he was God. Jesus, as a humbled man, was worshipped as God on multiple occasions, and he received the worship. But I want us to understand the humanity of Jesus, his full condescension, his full humility, just, just how great was his love and how great was his obedience and how great was his humility. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil. And jump down to verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Every respect. Isn't that amazing? He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Now, we know one of the respects he wasn't like us is he wasn't with sin. But Luke shows us that apparently one of the ways Jesus is like us is rather than coming into the world with a whole body of knowledge and information that we don't have, so in some respects, Jesus is operating with cheats. He's got an advantage that we didn't have. No, Jesus has to learn. I mean, understand this. The one who wrote God's word, the one who was God's word, in this passage is studying God's word to learn it. You think maybe we ought to spend time studying God's word if our savior and the author of the book spent, well, we'll get to that, we'll get to that. But it's astonishing, absolutely astonishing. Now, we, we do know that in the gospels, there are times Jesus exercises superhuman knowledge. In John chapter one, he knows Nathanael is under the tree. In John chapter four, he knows about the Samaritan woman's previous husbands. But all of those supernatural signs and wonders and the miracles Jesus performs occur after the baptism of the Holy Spirit, after he receives the Holy Spirit. And so it seems most likely that Jesus' miracle power and Jesus' superhuman knowledge are rather insights given by the Spirit, just as we have Old Testament examples, so that when, when Elisha's servant follows after, remember Naaman the Syrian comes and he bathes seven times, he wants to pay Elisha, and Elisha says, no, no. Well, afterwards, the, sermon, the servant of Elisha thinks, that's a stupid idea. And he runs after him and he says, my master changed his mind. 
And Elisha says, I saw you when you did that, and there's no way he could have physically seen him. Likewise, Peter knows that Ananias and Sapphira have lied to him. So I think, as I try to put this together, I think Jesus exercising supernatural knowledge is the Spirit of God, is his Father giving him extra information when he needs it for his mission, just as throughout the rest of Scripture, God has done with other prophets and holy men. But here, Jesus is learning. He's growing in wisdom. He doesn't come into the world knowing everything. He doesn't come into the world knowing even the Bible. (laughs) The humility and the condescension of our Lord. I just, it's it's marveling. It's marvelous and it's marveling. And, And the point here of this growing in favor with God and man is this. It's not that God's sort of pleased with Jesus, and then he gets more pleased with Jesus, and then he's really happy with Jesus. And by the time Jesus is 33, man, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That's not the point. The point is this. At every step, as Jesus learns a new thing, whether it be a physical skill or an intellectual piece of knowledge, at every point, one-to-one, the Father is pleased with it. This also eliminates the option that Jesus is making mistakes as he's learning. Jesus is believing false things. Every time he's growing, every time he's learning, the Father is pleased with one new thing. There's one new thing that the Father is pleased about. He's done it well. Jesus learns perfectly. Jesus grows perfectly. Jesus will even see, as he's sitting with the teachers, is asking questions, sifting. He's not just taking people's word for it. So he's learning, and he's growing in wisdom, but he's never believing anything that is false. He's never believing a lie. He's never believing something that is untrue. And we've got to distinguish between not knowing something and believing something that is false. Jesus never believed anything false. He never believed a lie. Jesus learned One of the amazing things we'll see also in this passage is Jesus at some point in his life had to learn his identity. Well, think about it. I got a five-month, I better get this right, five-month-old? All right, I got a five-month-old. I don't believe she knows who she is. It took Zadok a while to figure out who his name was. It's just human growth. Just human growth. So anyway, Jesus is growing, and he's growing in favor with God and man. This is also very similar to the language used of Samuel. Remember, we've had a lot of similarities with Samuel up to this point. Here's one final one. In Samuel 2.26, that's a typo. We read, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So that's the theme. This is the main thing we're to look at. Jesus growing, the growth of the Messiah And time has seriously jumped. The first jump was in actually verse, um, I gotta go back to Luke now, sorry. The first jump in our text was when verse 39, when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. Now we know that that's actually a couple years later because in between that, they'd fly down to Egypt because the wise men come and the wise men warn them of Herod and they flee down to Egypt and they stay down there until Herod dies and then they come up to Nazareth. So we've already moved a couple of years. But then we find out we've jumped ahead 12 more years, well, 12 years total. Time is seriously passing. And we go from a growing Messiah, point two, to a lost Messiah. Not that Jesus is lost, not that Jesus doesn't know where he is, but he's Mary and Joseph's boy, He's lo- they've lost him. And you know, I'm sure as parents you've ever misplaced your kids. Imagine if you misplaced the Messiah. <laughs> and I, I imagine, some, no, some writers have a really hard time believing this actually occurred. Luke says he did interviews, he, he, he researched. This is something I'm sure Mary never forgot. 
This is something I'm sure that Mary never forgot. And so we read this. His parents went to Jerusalem um, year after year to the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the law. When the feast had ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in the temple. And his parents did not know it. And supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, found him in the temple. They've lost their son. They've lost the Messiah. But before we look at that, I want you to notice again, because it keeps getting repeated, it keeps getting reemphasized, Joseph and Mary's faithfulness. What are they going up to Jerusalem for? They're going up according to the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy 16, 16, it is written, three times a year, all your men or all your males shall appear before the Lord, your God, at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is Passover, at the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So three times a year, every man in Israel is supposed to go to Jerusalem. By the way, this is one of the reasons why when I meet people today who claim they want to be following the Old Testament law, I try not to do this too, too snarkily, but I'll ask them, when's the last time they went to Israel? Because if you're trying to keep the Old Testament law, you better be going to Jerusalem three times a year. And if there's anything I see in the law, it's not flexing. These aren't guidelines. Moses is pretty clear on what needs to be done. And Joseph and Mary obey. And not only do they obey, but there's some evidence that some Jews would go up for the Passover, but just the Passover feast itself and leave. The Passover feast is a week long. And in this text, his parents went up to Jerusalem every year the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast had ended, not only did they faithfully go up, the entire family, they stay through the entire week of the feast. And at every point, we have seen Joseph and Mary be absolutely faithful. And I just want to encourage you, be faithful with the little things and God will be faithful with the big things. Joseph and Mary are raising the Son of God. They're raising, according to Elizabeth, the Lord and Joseph and Mary don't cut any corners. Joseph and Mary don't take on any ears and graces as if somehow they rise above the law. They are faithful. Mary went up to, to offer a sin offering to cleanse her from the birth of the child. On the eighth day, they were faithful to make sure Jesus was circumcised. And here, they are faithfully going up every year just as the law prescribes. And we know from Mary's offering, they didn't have a lot of money. They weren't dirt poor. They were not well-to-do. So you can imagine the economic hardship of traveling 80, 90 miles three times a year, being away from your home, away from your job, for a week here at least at a time, plus the travel time. And they were faithful, and God blessed it, but moreover, God is highlighting it. You want to do great things for God, be faithful with little things for God. You, you want to do great things for God. You want to reach the world for Christ. You want, to, you want to leave a mark. You want to have a legacy. Be faithful with the small things. Be faithful with the small things, and, and you will be faithful, according to Jesus, with greater things. So Joseph and Mary's faithfulness is highlighted, and then they lose track of Jesus, which I think is somewhat understandable. The family units go up together, presumably, because there's greater safety in numbers, and they're less likely to be attacked by thieves on the road. And they go up together, and when they leave, there's apparently just some assumption that Jesus is with his cousins, or Jesus is with someone else. And apparently, it's not until they gather together for the evening meal that they realize, uh-oh, he's not here. And they've already gone a day's travel. And so first thing in the morning, they, they get up, and they make a day's travel back. They get to Jerusalem, 
presumably at nighttime again. And then the next morning they start looking for him. So it's not, I don't believe it's that they get to Jerusalem and then at Jerusalem it's three days they're looking, but rather the whole thing is three days. A day out, a day back, a day of looking for him. And they lose and search for Jesus. This is also the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy that Simeon made. This child would cause sorrow, a sword would pierce her side. Now ultimately, that will happen when she sees the spear pierce her son's side. But even here, Jesus is filling her with grief, her concern for her child. Joseph and Mary's concern. And Jesus stayed behind. So we see a growing Messiah, a lost Messiah. Not that Jesus is lost, but his parents have lost him. And point three, we see a learning Messiah. A learning Messiah. Pick it up in verse 46 and 47. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So what has Jesus been up to for three days? For three days, and presumably nights, remember Anna never left the temple. There were some quarters for her there. So it's very possible Jesus is actually sleeping in the temple. What is Jesus doing? It tells us in verse 46, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Now, here's the $8,000 question. What is Jesus doing? What What does this mean? What are we to make of this? I think there's only two possibilities, and I think one of them won't work. Now, some people want to see in here 12-year-old Jesus already doing those things he would do just a few chapters later in the book. A few chapters later in the book, Jesus is shutting down. He is correcting. He is, he is admonishing. He is rebuking. He is instructing the teachers of Israel. You know neither the power of God nor the scriptures, he will say. Is it not written? And he will, and he will just go on and on and on. And he's, he's, he's there to set them straight. That's one possibility of what Jesus is doing here. I don't think it's the right one. Why not? Well, first of all, the text says what he's fundamentally doing is sitting and listening and asking questions. He doesn't say he's teaching. doesn't say he's instructing. He's sitting, listening, and asking questions. Moreover, there's not a hint in this passage of controversy of division. In fact, in verse 52, Jesus increased in favor with God and man. And I imagine if Jesus as a 12-year-old was shutting down and putting the smack down and, and correcting and teaching and setting them straight, that the rabbis, that, that would not have, they would not, he would not have grown in favor with them. And I don't think so. I used to be that kid in school and I did not grow in favor with my classmates or my teachers. I don't think so. No, and remember, what, what, does the, what does the inclusio tell us to look for? The inclusio tells us to look to see Jesus growing in wisdom. So what is a person growing in wisdom, sitting among teachers, listening and asking questions, doing? He's learning. Plug, plug that through. Jesus valued and sought out teachers of scripture because Jesus apparently thought he could grow in his understanding of scripture better with their aid than without it. How many of us think, I don't need a teacher. I can just read my Bible and figure it out myself. Jesus didn't think that. Jesus could have done many things in Jerusalem. Jesus could have played with other boys. Jesus could have toured and seen the historic monuments. 
He could have done stuff with his family. Jesus prioritized sitting at the feet of the teachers and learning for at least three days, possibly longer. They only knew he was gone for three days. He could have been there the entire week of the feast. Why? The temple is the center of the worship of God in Jerusalem. The temple would be where the wisest and most learned priests would be. And yes, we know many of them are unbelieving and many of them are hypocritical, but we've already met in Luke's gospel faithful Israelites, faithful teachers of the law, faithful people like Zechariah, like Simeon, like Anna. And I believe Jesus has sought out faithful teachers and he's sitting and learning from them. And yes, he's asking questions. He's sifting questions what they're saying. He's not just taking it full bore. But Jesus, again, get this, thinks he can learn the scriptures better and it's more valuable for him to seek out teachers of the law who've studied it more than him to that point than him going in a corner by himself and reading his Torah. That's the undeniable conclusion. How much more then ought we? Or do we have abilities and skills that we, we can understand the Bible better than Jesus? It's, it's, it's absolutely jaw-dropping. One of the other ways we know that this is learning is listen to Luke in Acts write about Paul. Acts 28, 26. No, sorry, Acts 22, 3. Paul, defending himself, says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. So Luke has already, or not, he hasn't already, Luke will again write about what it means to sit in the presence of a teacher. It means to learn. It means to learn. Now again, Jesus didn't simply take in everything they said. We see him asking questions. Moreover, it says, apparently, they are asking him questions in turn because the crowd is astonished at the answers he gave. So not only is he asking questions, but apparently at some point they're saying to him, well, what do you make of that? And he's giving answers. I think he's doing it respectfully, like a, like a young man should. He's not being an upstart. Everyone's impressed. Everyone's amazed. That's the next point. Jesus answers and understanding amaze. And here we see what somebody who has devoted himself to the study of God's word, devoted himself to serious things, is capable of. You know, we're happy today if our 12-year-olds you know, can take the trash out. Jesus here, start, no, but in Israel, he's a year away from being a man. He's a year away from being a man. In one more year, he can leave the court of the women and children and enter into the court of the men. At 13 years of age. This is the year before Jesus can actually go with his father all the way to the, the court of the men in, in the temple. And he's giving us some idea of the capability of what someone focused and wholly intent on the will of God and his word is able to do. And his answers astound. And again, this is confirming Luke's statement, the child grew in wisdom. Here we see it. This child, even as he's learning, is amazing and astounding those who stand by and watch. No wonder God is pleased with him. This also sets up and fulfills prophecy like Isaiah 11:1 to 3, speaking of the coming Messiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. 
We also see here in, in seed form that the, the traits that would characterize Jesus' ministry. A little later in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, we read in verse 43, they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Or in John 7, 46, the, the priests and the Pharisees send out some soldiers, temple soldiers, to arrest Jesus. And they go and they listen to him and they come back. And this, they, why didn't you bring him with you? And they said, no one ever spoke like this man. How did Jesus, and again, we're tempted to think, no one ever spoke, well, of course, he's God. No, he's the 33-year-old man who was doing this when he was 12. Get that. You know, when we hear stories, I remember this from the Do Hard Things conference, we hear stories about the accomplishments of George Washington and others like him when they were teenagers. How George Washington taught himself trigonometry as a teenager, taught himself um, surveying, and began to make what would be by today's standards, you know, almost $100,000 a year as a teenager. We say, well, of course he could do that. He's George Washington. No, he became George Washington because he was the teenager first. And how did Jesus possess such wisdom that he confounded the Pharisees, that they spoke with authority, that no one ever spoke like this man? It's because he was diligent here studying, because he didn't waste his time, because he knew the things that mattered, because he was hungry for God's word. And so we're watching the boy become the man who would silence his adversaries, not fundamentally as an extension of his deity, but his humanity. Get that. We're seeing him on the way to become the Jesus who shows up in chapter 4 of Luke, astounding people with his authority and teaching. In two chapters, we're to find Jesus full grown, and he has mastered the Bible. Not because he's God, but because he's a faithful man. And we're seeing that progress here. It's absolutely astounding. Four. A chastised Messiah. A chastised Messiah. We've seen a growing Messiah, a lost Messiah, a learning Messiah, a chastised Messiah. Now, in any way you'd break it, what Mary says to Joseph is some form of rebuke, some form of correction. And this introduces another problem into the text that we've got to try to work through. We'll just look at it in verse 48 to 50. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Everyone else is amazed. The word here, astonished, has a bit more of the befuddled, confused, what? You know, everyone's just in awe of the kid, the child, the boy. Mary and Joseph are astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So what's she saying? She's saying clearly, you've mistreated us. You haven't been thinking of us. The result of you not thinking of us is that your, your father and I have been very, very distressed and anxious looking for you. It seems like a reasonable complaint, right? I mean, how many of you have had your kids wander off in a store and said something similar? Why, why weren't you paying attention? Why'd you, uh, why, why didn't, why'd you go to your friend's house without letting us know? We've been looking high and low for you, right? This is, you can get where Mary's coming from, right? So then here's the next question. Was Jesus not thinking of them? Did he... Did he did he kind of, you know, lost track of time? I don't think so. Again, what marks this passage? God's favors upon him. And Jesus doesn't take the rebuke. He answers it. 
But the blank here for Mary's rebuke, and this is the key contrast in this passage and really the high point of this passage. Because remember, up until now, the angel's spoken, but Jesus has not said a word. And for the first time in Luke's gospel, our main character, the one who we've heard so much about, opens his mouth and speaks and introduces himself to us. And it all hinges on Father. So Mary's rebuke, your Father and I. Your Father and I. What does Jesus say? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be about my Father's house? You get the difference? Both of them say, Mary says your Father, Jesus says my Father, and they both mean two different people. They're talking about two different people. What's astounding is, as I said, Jesus would have had to learn who he is just like all of us do. But here at the age of 12, Jesus has somehow, somewhere between birth and here, whether it's through the stories of Mary and Joseph telling him about what the angel said, whether it was some through some special revelation from the Spirit from God, Jesus now knows who he is fully. He's the Son of God. And when Jesus opens and speaks, we the reader, for the first time, he introduces himself to us. Who's Jesus? He's the Son of God, and he knows it. And I imagine that must have been hard for Mary to hear. I mean, you know, some people can get confused. How did, how did Mary make this mistake? Didn't Mary, just a chapter or so earlier, confess him to be the Lord? Confess him to be the Messiah. Didn't she hear what Elizabeth said? My Lord, mother of my Lord is here. How, how did Mary, who is... Who is so theologically on a chapter earlier, forget. Well, it's been a chapter for us, but it's been 12 years for her. And I think I've spoken to many Christians who will testify that the greatest struggles in their life are not learning new truths they need to know, but remembering the truths they do. And I think it's easy to imagine how a mother watching her boy grow, feeding him, changing him, watching him grow up, watching him crawl, watching him walk, watching him play with the other children, can forget or at least not press out the implications that he's the son of God. He's got an altogether different father. And so when he gets lost, she gets scared. She gets in scared mother mode. You know what I'm talking about. And she finds him and she says, your father and I have been looking for you everywhere. And Jesus says, why are you looking for me? Don't you know that must be about my father's house? And even as a 12-year-old, Jesus is putting a little distance between himself and his family. Not in, a, not in a rebellious way. But again, this is in seed form what we see just a little later in the book. Turn to, turn to just a few chapters in Luke to Luke 8. Verse 19. Then his mother and his brothers, yes, Jesus had brothers, came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. And he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Once Jesus enters into his full ministry, once Jesus receives the Holy Spirit, he is no longer Mary's boy. He's Mary's God and Savior. And once Jesus is fully on mission, no one gets any special approach to him because they're part of his blood or his kin. 
the only relationship that Jesus accepts, the only relationship Jesus is willing to acknowledge, the only relationship that matters to him are those who hear and believe and obey God's word. They're his family. And that's not fully going on here back in chapter two, but again, we're seeing the beginning of this concept where Jesus is starting to make some space. Mother, I have another father to whom I need to be concerned. Now, I believe Jesus went to the temple legitimately as an obedient child. Whether he asked for permission, I don't know. And then he just stayed there, believing my parents will come and get me when they want to go. And so his answer is genuine and sincere. He's, why were you looking for me? I mean, it'd be kind of like if my son, Abner, wanted to go sledding in our backyard. I said, Dad, can I go sledding? I said, sure. And then two hours later, I you know, opened the, the door. Abner, where have you been? We've been looking for you high and low. Dad, why were you looking for me? You knew I was sledding. Something's going on here. Why, why, why were you looking for me? Do you not know I'd be in my father's house? Whether it's because they left him there or he asked to go there, I don't know. But Jesus is saying, I, I, I thought you knew where I was and I thought you'd come and get me when it was time to go. I don't think Jesus knew perfectly well his parents left without him and Jesus didn't care. And Jesus thought, you know, that's tough. Didn't go and warn them. If that was the case, I think Mary's rebuke would have some merit to it. Be hard to see. He might be God. He might be a savior. It's hard to see him as an obedient, parent-honoring child. No, I think his question is quite sincere. Why were you looking for me? And Mary and Joseph are confused from this. What we see here is Jesus has got. He's wrapped his head around. He's got the full implications of his deity, of his relationship to the Father. He's a twelve-year-old. He knows he's the Son of God. He knows his Father is God. He knows that in preparation for his mission as the Messiah, he needs to own inside and out the scripture. And so when he gets the opportunity to sit with the most learned and wise, and some of them believing and faithful teachers in Israel, he jumps at the chance. And he just sits at their feet, soaking it up, asking questions, asking questions, sifting what they're saying, learning, growing in wisdom. Where else would you expect them to be? And Mary and Joseph are confused. They spoke perhaps better than they knew, or they haven't fully pieced together, haven't fully pressed out, teased out to the corners the implications of things they said only a chapter before. They're confounded and confused. Again, a not uncommon thing in Luke. Jesus repeatedly reread, the people did not understand any of these things. The saying was hidden to them, Luke 18, 34. So much so that in, in chapter 24 of Luke, Jesus had to open the minds of his disciples to understand. We're seeing a lot of themes in Luke beginning here. Jesus speaking and people close to him not even fully understanding what he's saying. Finally, we're going to see a submissive Messiah, a submissive Messiah. He's a growing Messiah. He's a lost Messiah. He's a learning Messiah. He's a chastised Messiah. He is a submissive Messiah. Verse 51. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was or continued being submissive to them. His mother treasured all these things in his heart. Jesus is God. Again, we get back to the humility of Christ. He set aside the use of his, his divinity. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He knew all things. He had to learn the most basic things. He had all authority and all right. He obeyed his parents and went to the backwater town of Nazareth in Galilee. This king of kings goes to the, the armpit of Israel. 
as it were. No, 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 I'm not saying that. John chapter one. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It had a reputation for being backwater. I mean, every, every region, every place has got places like that. Martinsdale, no. Um, and, and Prol, I don't know, I don't know. And Jesus goes and lives in relative ignominy away from the temple life, except for three times a year, away from these teachers, and he goes and he honors his parents. If Jesus can do that, can, can we be submissive to our authorities? Children, can we honor our parents? Ought we to? Has he not set us the perfect example even before he begins to go and pick up his ministry in full? Is he not a savior to be adored and worshiped in wonder and awe? And the passage ends probably where we should. Mary pondered all these things in her heart. I mean, there's a lot for us to think about here. There's a lot of things that are just too great for us. Now, we're going to transition at this point in, in preparation for communion. And before we take communion, I want us to heed Paul's warning. Warns us to, to examine ourselves lest we not be examined, to judge ourselves, lest we not be judged. He says this in 1 Corinthians 11. Let a person examine himself then so as to eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drink judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. It can be fatal, apparently, to approach communion without examining oneself. Now this is not a magic meal. This is simply bread and grape juice. But symbolically, what it communicates is that you, and you're welcome to come to this table. This table is for you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have come to know him by faith, if you have turned from your sin to him and, and received him as your Messiah, you're trusting in who he is and what he did. He died on a cross for your sins. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man, fully God, fully human, lived a sinless life on your and my behalf that God might look on him and pardon us. This meal also indicates that we are those who come again and again and again to feed from him, that we are those who continue to come to him. We eat and we drink and we find strength and nourishment in him and in his word. We indicate his death until he comes, proclaiming it. We proclaim our unity to one another as well. And so it is right for us to examine ourselves. So I'm gonna have a moment, about a minute or so of prayer and then you can remain seated. We will sing a song for preparation for communion. And then we will proceed.